Good morning, church. Uh, this morning's sermon, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up, is probably going to be a little bit different uh, than what we would normally experience here, uh, typically going very verse by verse, and today is going to be more of a principle uh, with a lot more practicality and application. And it may sound a little bit more like a pregame speech uh, than a traditional sermon. And my hope this morning is to reinvigorate you uh, and to expand your view of the gospel. And the reason that I say that is that I believe in many evangelical circles, we have shrunk the gospel down to simply just a set of cognitive beliefs, and uh, we have failed to understand that it is a world-shaping power. It is a dominion-taking proclamation given by our living king. I think we've limited it too much. And uh, I realized this uh, sometime in the spring, I was doing some work for a Christian school and doing a staff meeting, and I asked them, I said, what is the purpose of Christian education? And almost universally, uh, they said, to share the gospel with students in the world. Now, I don't think that's a wrong response at all. I think it's a really good starting point, but I do think it's severely limiting, um, and for, for two reasons. One is, it's just not working. And you can see that in in America as we lose so many of our young people uh, because I don't think it connects them to to life as a whole. I think it it, it ministers to the spirit, but it begins to have gaps when it talks about their calling in life. And number two is is I don't think it does justice uh, to the scope and power of the gospel in terms of a kingdom element, to a kingdom ethic as we are called to go forth and to subdue the earth. I think in a sense, we really have become Gnostic in the Western church. For those of you familiar with Gnosticism, it began to, to view the physical world as bad and the spiritual world as good. And so out of that came this denial of the divinity of Christ. Um, and it certainly is, is humanity. The two would never come together in Gnosticism. And I think we've done this. We've begun to separate uh, the spiritual from the physical. We, we disconnect church from vocation. Uh, we, we disconnect our, our kind of spiritual life from the way we care even for for our bodies. Um, and, and one of these, the spiritual side is holy, and the physical side and vocation, calling our jobs are really just basic things that are just means to something bigger than that. And, and as a result of that, I think in many parts of the church in the West, we've kind of retreated to our holy huddles. We complain about the outside pressures of the world. And uh, as a result, we have, we've been getting destroyed in the cultural wars. So how did we get here? And in just a few short decades, I, I'm 46 years old. And so some of you being this age, think back to what the world was like when you graduated high school. Um, the, the sexual revolution has been completely turned on its head in a matter of 20 years. Um, how did we get to the, the point where I can say this to 18-year-olds? I can say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And they go, oh, yeah, I understand what that means. If you'd have said that 100 years ago at any other point in human history, they would have looked at you and been like, what are you talking about? But how did we get to the point where that simple phrasing has entered the vernacular and we kind of nod like, yeah, we know what you mean when you say that. Now, I want to use World War II as an example. How did we get here? So if you know your history, you know that in, after World War I, nothing was really settled, uh, that the Germans had in, invaded France, 
uh, as they had done about five times in the previous 200 years. You'd think they'd have figured it out by now, but they didn't. The French in Europe, by and large, were tired of fighting, and so they established the Maginot Line, which was this impenetrable force of defense that they put on their borders, thinking that if Germany did it again, they could only get this far, but they'd never get into Paris again. And so Hitler begins to merge in Germany, and the French are they're kind of thinking, you know what, we're good. We're holed up here. We've got the defense lines set up. We'll kind of let the Germans do their thing. And uh, Hitler then decided, you know what, I'm going to start pushing the envelope a little bit. So he takes the Rhineland, and the French do nothing, thinking, you know what, he can have the fringes of Europe, but he can't have France. And then he moved into the Sudetenland because they needed farmland. And the French were like, you know what, we're not ready to fight again. We have the Maginot Line. We're holed up behind it. Well, then he takes Czechoslovakia, and Europe kind of begins to look around. They begin to get a little bit nervous, but they're not ready to fight. They're willing to give up, again, the outer banks of the boundaries of the kingdom, as long as he's not getting into France. And then there's the Blitzkrieg of Poland. And having abandoned the fringes, thinking all that mattered was Paris, they now find that Hitler is on the doorsteps right outside of France. Now, Hitler also wasn't stupid. He knew I couldn't go through the Maginot Line. So guess what he did? He just went around it and marched right into Paris. I think evangelicalism has taken their cues a little bit from France because there was this assumption for 150 years in America, maybe even longer than that in the West, that the basic defenses of common morality and basic doctrines in the church, this cultural Christianity, it would be, we would hold up fine. And you can have the fringes, world, but we are going to keep the pulpits and the pews. And so the pagans, they took Hollywood, and we thought, you know what, you guys tell good stories, and we kind of like a lot of the stuff you put out, but you can have Hollywood. Then they took Wall Street, and we thought, you know what? The love of money is the root of evil, so you guys can have the marketplace as well. And then they take L.A. and Miami and the fashion industry, and we say, well, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so you guys can have the fashion industry, and then we all complain because we can't find clothing suitable for our 16-year-old daughters. Then they take Washington and politics, and we say, Christ is our king, and his kingdom is of another world, and so you can do that. We send our best and brightest into ministry, but not into the worldly endeavors like politics. Then they took the Department of Education, and we said, well, math is math, so go ahead. There's really no connection into the church. Then they take higher education, philosophy, the laboratories, the sciences. And at this point, we think, you know what? We'll just slap a Christian verse on science and we'll redeem it that way. We'll put a bumper sticker on it. The thinking was that as long as we have the pews and the pulpits on a Sunday morning, we are safe and we will be fine and we will be secure. Well, the pagan forces decide that they, they're not going to take on doctrine directly, right? That, that the outside world is not going to come and engage with justification, They don't care, but they do care what goes on here. They're just not going to do it directly. And so having gained the fringes and the cultural forces around us, they decided to take the long game and they decided to circumvent our Maginot line of doctrine and conviction. And they decided, you know what? We'll just disciple their children with Disney and with Netflix. And if you don't think there is robust discipleship going on with what our kids are watching, you are being naive. Disney sends a message with every movie they put out. Let's take, for example, Moana. 
right? If you've seen the movie, you have a dad who's telling a rebellious teenage daughter, don't go beyond the reef. There's danger beyond the reef. And what does Disney present every adult figure as? A moron. And so the 13-year-old daughter rebels against her father and her life flourishes and she comes back and dad has to say, I was wrong, sweetie. Just once, I want to put together a Disney movie of reality where the daughter defies dad, goes out beyond the reef and a shark eats her. And dad looks at the siblings and says, I told her not to go beyond the reef. It's a seven-minute Disney movie, probably not going to make a whole lot of money, uh, but it's probably a more biblical approach to life. Think of something like Will and Grace. You guys can go back, I don't know, 20 years ago, where something like the sexual ethics in regards to homosexuality was still very taboo. And so what did they do? They introduced it into your living room, into my living room, with just a little bit of laughter here and there, very non-threatening, bringing it into your home. And next thing you know, it's been normalized. They decided to go after the Department of Education and introduce evolution as the norm, CRT, gender studies, secularism, materialism, and sex education. They decide to introduce rampant individualism and allows people to create their own truth. And then bodily autonomy and choice become a sacrament. And the approach was that eventually these young people, if they held on long enough, these would be the young people that would be sitting in the pews. These would be the young people that would eventually take the pulpits. And it was their way to get around our Maginot line where they didn't have to address it directly. And this is where we find ourselves today on the back end of a hundred years of appeasement with a culture and constantly doing nothing but playing defense. Well, friends, this is not how God designed us to fulfill our purpose. We are dominion taking, subduing image bearers in a culture and not just talking spiritually. This is what God has called us to do. And I believe that Genesis 1, the text we read this morning, provides a template for this. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, he's not just talking about the way we make decisions and we're moral beings and this is what separates us from the animals. He is speaking to an ancient culture that understood that a king, when he ruled a territory, he would put statues of himself at the edge of the boundaries. It would be like President Biden taking his own image and placing it at the coastlines and along the Canadian border and along the Mexican border to say, this is who rules here. I rule here. So when we go forth out of Eden, which was a teeny tiny little piece of creation, and Adam is supposed to go out as an image bearer and subdue, which means that there was chaos outside of Eden. He had to bring it under control, not a sinful chaos because creation was good, but nonetheless, there was work to do as Adam and Eve had children multiplied and sent these image bearers out to demonstrate to the cosmos that the reign of the Lord extends all the way to the fringes, not just to Eden, that he is the king. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so we need to understand too that it's not just spiritual work. Look at the words that are used in that text, fish, birds, livestock. There's a physicality because we are not just spiritual beings and we don't just relate to God in spiritual ways. The incarnation provides a perfect model for this. Jesus takes on flesh and he engages the world bodily. And Colossians 1, which invokes some language from Genesis, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. 
And so basically what we're being told is what Adam failed to do as the original image bearer, Christ now as the image of God is going to do fully. The second Adam will succeed where the first Adam failed miserably. And that's where we find ourselves today. We get to go on the coattails of this king who has conquered all things. And the creational mandate for subduing is still very much intact. And we see him articulate this in Matthew 28 with the sermon on the, or the, uh, the Great Commission. And he says, okay, now go and make disciples, teaching him what? Everything that I have commanded. Everything. Not just bits and pieces of doctrinal truth, but teaching absolutely everything because he is king of everything. And then we see it at Pentecost when the, when the apostles are sent out from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, to the fringes they are supposed to go. And we see it articulated to the, to the saints in, uh, in, the, in Thessalonica when they're sitting there and they're waiting on a hill for Christ to come back. And what does Paul say to them? Go to Go to work. Like, he'll come back, but go to work. Go do the things that God has called you to do. He'll come back in his time. But in the meantime, you guys have plenty of work to do. You see, Jesus, from day one, was never about holding up and waiting and playing defense. When he redeems something, he redeems it completely. And Grant preached a couple of weeks ago, creation is groaning. It, too, will be redeemed. It too will be made perfect and we have a role as Christ's image bearers to go and to begin to do that work even now. And so that's the theological principle that I want you to latch on to this morning. We're gonna spend a lot of time on breaking every seminary rule for preaching this morning. I got more than three points, okay? So the first thing that I think we need to do is we've got to get out of a defensive mindset all the time. It just hasn't worked Those of you who played sports, so Grant is a basketball player, world-class basketball player uh, from Cedarville. You can go, you know, genuflected a statue if you ever visit the university there. But you ask Grant, if your basketball coach walks into practice and says, today is a defense-only practice, what immediately happens to the demeanor of the team? Right? Because you almost had to do it out of punishment. But this is kind of what we've done. We've just held up and played defense. It is time to train the next generation for another D-Day, to storm the beaches again and say, this is my king's land. I'm going to take it back. Jesus has already won the battle. We just have to do and get to do the cleanup work. It's what Paul tells the Corinthians. Because of his mercy, we have been given this ministry. He doesn't need us to do this. He gives us the work to do, to go and to take part in the victory of what, his, of what our Heavenly Father has done. And in order to do this, we need to know the tactics. We have to know what the outside world is wanting to do to us, what the cultural forces are doing, and we have to be willing to push back. I just give my students a hard time because they'll walk in and they'll say, uh, Mr. Gast, uh, some kids wanted to know, like, how can I prove the existence of God? And I say, ask them to prove he doesn't exist. Push back. You can put the burden of proof back on other people. The Bible doesn't begin as an apologetic for God. It makes an assumption in the beginning, God. And then it just moves on. God doesn't have to prove himself. That's been left up for men to say, prove yourself to me. And God's like, look around. Look around. Just assume it to be. So we've got to push back. Number two, this one may be a little personal. We've got to break from this victim mentality that we have in the church. We are called to be salt and light. 
And so if the culture is rotting, it's maybe because we have not done our job appropriately. Can I get that? Uh, let's just read through this. Very familiar, but I just want you to see the text. Because we are called, again, to be salt and light. And so what does the salt do? It staves off rot. That's primarily what it does. And so I'm not going to read it. I just want you to see it up there because you guys are so... Well, actually, I'll read it since it's up there now. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In other words, if it's lost its effectiveness, can we restore it? And Jesus says, no, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, which is what we're seeing in our culture. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But I see so much victim playing. Oh, woe is me. The culture, I just don't know. The pressures are too great. We need to own up where we have failed. Where we have not been salty enough, why are we surprised when the culture is rotting? When the world is getting darker, why are we surprised when we are not shining our lights brighter? And if we're offended because people are gonna do this when you shine light in a dark room, then so be it. But we are not responsible for reaction for shining the light of Christ in a culture. We have got to be more bold. The darkness hates the light, so why are we surprised when a culture hates us? This is not a surprise. Jesus told his disciples and us from day one, the world hates me, it's going to hate you, especially when you expose that his deeds are wicked. Thirdly, we have to train ourselves to keep advancing the kingdom. So many of my friends will say things like, well, it's just, so I do a lot of weddings for college kids. And I will, this is, I'm amazed how many times people say this. So do you think I should have kids because the world's just a bad place and I don't want to raise kids up in this culture? And I want to smack them around a little bit and say, first of all, we're told to be fruitful and multiply. Second of all, the church needs more people on the battle line. So yes, have kids. But don't hole up as if you're in Vietnam waiting for the rapture Apache helicopter to just pull you out. Get up and start fighting back and gaining ground again. The gates of hell, friends, don't prevail. We read it flip-flopped. We see the church in the gates and, oh, we're holding off the culture. It's the other way around. The gates of hell do not prevail against the gospel power that will eventually collapse it. We are on the outside pressing in, not on the inside playing defense. We forget this. Our king wins. I remember those of you who grew up in the 90s, you know, Michael Jordan is a pretty good basketball player. And there's a clip where the Bulls are playing the Knicks, and I think it's game six, and it's like a, a two-point game, and there's a, like 30 seconds left, and there's a timeout called by, by the Knicks. And the Knicks are all gathered around their coach, drawing up plays, doing their things. And you look over at the Bulls bench, and they're all just sitting in silence, like drinking their water. They're, you know, Dennis Rodman's poking. They're making jokes, and the Bulls end up winning. And after the game, one of the reporters asked Steve Kerr, he said, so you guys were not doing anything during those last 30 seconds. And Steve Kerr goes, we have Michael Jordan. Like there was no doubt, like they're freaking out. We have Michael Jordan. Like I think we forget guys that Christ really lives. He really lives. This is not some myth. It's not some motivational idea that we just delude ourselves with. Our King lives. Our God makes promises. He keeps every single one of them, and he has promised that he will live in the end and us reigning with him. 
That's a pretty good promise. So let's latch on to these things and not turn our eyes inward. We look to the hills. From where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He controls it all. And that goes to the fourth thing. Remember that Christ is king of absolutely everything. He's not king of some things. He's king of everything, which means banking, education, physics, chemistry, English, physical therapy, art, literature, trash collecting, street cleaning. All of life then is sacred and worship unto the Lord. And it's that realization that doesn't just connect our faith to the gospel, but it gives meaning to our calling and vocation and to the other six days of the week as well. And a lot of this has to be done in parenting and education. And there's a lot of homeschool families here. And I would encourage you guys, get your children to understand that he rules the fringes. The fringes are where the, the, the battle is the, is the hottest. And so I say, is there a godly way, for example, to do everything? I would say, yeah. What about eating a meal? Is there a godly way to eat a meal? And you would say, I don't know. Well, guess what? If you're Hindu, you don't eat beef because you don't want to eat grandma, right? It's because of reincarnation. And so, yes, there's a religious element to even eating. Or if you're Jewish or Muslim, you don't eat pork. But our God says, no, go forth and eat. So even something like diet, there, is, there are godly principles at play here. Again, king of everything. And the phrase I once heard in a podcast is called theological maximalism. That which is understanding all of life and that which is true, good, and beautiful. How do I bank in such a way that is true, good, and beautiful? How do I do carpentry in such a way that is true, good, and beautiful? Is Franklin City Church seeking to infiltrate every local factory around us, every single school board, sending our best and brightest into the government that they can begin to shape policy in ways that are true, good, and beautiful and reflect kingdom ethics? Are we raising our kids to understand that they are image bearers in everything that they create at the fire station or even in the chemistry lab? And not just seeing their vocation as a platform to share the gospel, which is certainly included in all of this, but as an opportunity to delight in and to take dominion over the small piece of creation that God has given them to steward and to do it better and unto the glory of God. Are we raising the best and hardest workers, the most creative writers, the leading businessmen in a community? Are they motivated to make the best new smartphone and do it with such excellence that it cannot help but reflect the goodness of their creator in the way that they create? Next, we must understand the connection between our work and our worship. The words that God gives to Adam to tend and to cultivate in Genesis are the exact same words given to the priests in the temple and tabernacle as they go about their work. And the idea of the tabernacle and temple, they look a lot like Eden. If you read about them, they've got a tree of life in the middle. They've got basins symbolic of the rivers in Eden. They're covered in wood. It looks a lot like a mini Eden. And the idea is this is where we meet with God. This is the work and worship that's done in Eden. This is the work and worship that is done in the temple. And you guys, as priests and kings and prophets in a culture, we do the exact same thing. So Jared, make the best houses possible and do them really, really well, not just as an opportunity to share the gospel so that we sit back and go, man, this is really cool that God made my hands able to do that. 
and do it with excellence and do it with delight. But it just doesn't include, um, you know, that work. It includes kingdom building, family making, legacy creating as we take his image to the kingdom, to the edges, to the fringes, and understanding that every place we go as God's image bearers carrying the Holy Spirit is now holy ground that has been reclaimed. My vocation must be more than a paycheck. It's a calling that reflects a king. We must teach our kids next to know that their story ends in victory and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Are they confident because they see us as confident? Or do they see us proclaim the power of God but then cower before the waves of the culture? Do they have the imagination to see and a vision to accomplish it or just the facts to explain it? When I was in, I was taking a political science class in college, and one of the papers I wrote was why the liberal side captures imagination and why the conservatives lose out on the creative side of it. And the main point was, and I think people are seeing this, if you watch any presidential election, you will see the conservative candidate always just lay down facts. Well, here's our budget numbers, boom, 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 boom. The other candidate will then get up and say, let me tell you about Susie, single mom struggling to make ends meet. Now all of a sudden these numbers don't mean anything because they've connected to a certain element of humanity. It's why things like Disney and Netflix and YouTube are so impactful to us and to our children because it captures the heart. We're not just brains on a stick. And sometimes I think we preach as if we're brains on a stick. If I just give you the next verse, if I just give you the next doctrinal point, go out and sin no more. Jesus does that occasionally, but what does he do by and large? He sits down and he tells stories. He says, oh, consider the sower. Consider the mustard seed. Consider the goats. Consider the fish. He's, he's connecting it to life. We've got to do a better job of creating an imaginative uh, ethic and not just a doctrinal ethic. They both are necessary. Don't get me wrong but I think they play on one another. We are thinking beings and we are affective beings. We feel deeply about things. Can we trust every emotion? No, but I think we're dishonest if we deny that we are created to be emotional beings reflecting the heart of a good king. And finally, we need to, be a create, we need to create a church culture that isn't scared to find the high places of our culture and knock down the idols of the day. It's our rainbow first. We cannot take a knee before the moral revolution of our day. Our God saves every tongue, tribe, and nation, and so we don't bow before the intersectionality of CRT. Our God ordains life, calls it into being, creates it from nothing, ordains it from beginning, sovereignly sustains it, and so we do not bow before the cultural convenience of abortion. How bold are we really? Ask yourself that question. How bold am I really? How often do I genuinely contend when I take up a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, building things over here and contending against the enemies of the faith over here. It's almost as if we think the 11th commandment is be nice. But I see a number of instances when Jesus and Paul were not necessarily nice. When Jesus sees that worship has become a marketplace, he flips tables and he chases people with whips. Sometimes we forget that experience with Christ. I get a little snarky every now and then, and I had one of my teachers this week say, I just want kids to have an experience with Jesus. I said, I know what you mean, but which experience are you talking about? Now, do you want the whips? 
Do you want the rich young ruler experience that leaves dejected and sad? Do you want the woman at the well experience that leaves because her sin has been exposed? The point being, we want to present Christ in all of his fierceness, all of it, so that people have an experience before Christ. And guess what? Christianity is not a negotiation. It is a surrender. This is your king. You either bow now or you bow on the other side of judgment, but you will bow at one point. Why? Because he's worth bowing to. Not as a threat, but as a delight, as Grant prayed, that he would be our delight and that we would be affectionate towards him. But also, there's a fear of the Lord that's been lost even within the church. What about Paul? He has no problem walking into Ephesus and poking the idols. Just pokes them. And the people surround him and they're mad at him and they cast him out. He walks into Mars Hill. He says, I see you have an altar to the unknown God. It's kind of dumb because I know who he is. You want to know who he is? Right? He's bold. We see Jesus take a knee with the woman at the well and we say, oh, look how gracious he is. Have you actually stopped and really considered what took place there? He takes a knee. Yes, it's great. But what's he say? Knowingly, he says, go call your husband. He knows exactly what he's doing. That's not a nice question if you know, right? That's a really bold, direct, embarrassing question. And she says, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. I've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Like that's a hang in the balance kind of question. Now she responds favorably, but it was no guarantee. Now he's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. But for us to have that kind of boldness, to point out sin, that's the loving thing to do. So we're not to be offensive in one way, but offense sometimes means you got to cross somebody over on the court and make them look, oh, I got around you. Do better. Do better. Friends, the world needs distinction. I think this is the thing that's lacking the most. It needs distinction. And if we are looking around us and we see a rotting, dark culture, let us take some responsibility for this and be more salty and be brighter lights. It takes boldness. It takes guts. It takes faith in the promises of God, but it's what we have been called to do. I've worked with young people now for about 25 years, and I've seen a ton in that last quarter century. And I believe that one of the main reasons so many of them leave the church is because they see this lack of conviction from us, that we sing, this is my father's world on one hand, and yet seem to care so very little about it on the other. Or we shout about the power and reign of Christ as king on a Sunday morning, and then we wilt below the cultural tsunamis of the moral revolution. Or we sing a mighty fortress on Sunday, and then we hide in our cubicles on Monday. Do we not understand the rock on which we stand cannot be eroded by the fiercest wave? He made the wave. <laughs> the king we worship has defeated every single enemy, every last one, even death. So if they kill us, so what? We win. We gain Christ. And if we don't, we still work for Christ. If we want to capture the next generation, if we want to create a culture in which they can flourish and thrive and go forth and fulfill the creational mandate and what God has called them to do, we must present Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, but also in all of his fierceness. Now, I got a little bit of a lengthy quote here, but Dorothy Sayers just says it way better than me, and so I'll just let her explain this to us. She says, the people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. 
we have very efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. In any case, those who saw the risen Christ remain persuaded, and this is for us, that life was worth living and death a triviality, an attitude curiously unlike that of the modern defeatist who is firmly persuaded that life is a disaster and death a major catastrophe. I'll close with a story of a saint that I've been captivated by for uh, maybe the last year, the story of Boniface. And if you guys know anything about Boniface, there's a boldness to this man that I'm very envious of. 1,300 years ago, the land we now know as Germany um, was kind of on the fringes of the missionary work that was moving into Europe. And the pagans there worshipped a god known as Thor. So you Marvel or DC, I don't know my... uh, my comics all that well, uh, but you know that name, young people. And it was a bloody and very sexually perverse cult that centered around a huge oak tree in the center of town. And it was known that this is Thor's oak tree. And so Boniface goes into town, and as legend has it, he challenges the priests of Thor, and he says, hey, I cut down your tree, nothing happens to me, you convert, and you realize that my God's bigger. I mean, this is an Elijah and Baal moment here. Takes, out and takes off his shirt, spits on his hand, grabs an axe, and they kind of stood. Because the thinking was, if you even took a twig off this tree, you were going to be killed. So he just starts chopping, nothing happens. Starts chopping, nothing happens. Just keeps going to town. You can imagine the priests kind of looking nervously at each other like, what's this guy doing? Like, where is our God? Why is he not acting? Eventually, as legend has it, a, a wind picked up and knocked the tree completely over, and the people sat in stunned silence. And Thor, not one to, you know, he's a good steward, so he makes the first church out of this oak tree, which I love. Now, am I saying that we should not go out, that we should go out and chop down rainbow flags? No, probably not. But I will say that one of the indictments that God had against Israel was that they tolerated the pagan worships of the high places, that they didn't speak out against these things, that they were not removing these things that were beginning to infiltrate and impact the next generation. Now, like, I don't know, uh, you know, I do know, however, that if we see Christ as king over all things, that we understand that he rules the kingdom, our kingdom as well. And the most loving thing we can do for our neighbors is to point them to that king, even if they don't like it. Parents, sometimes you understand that your kids aren't going to like what you say. Eat your vegetables. It's good for you. They cry. But mom, no, no, it's good for you. We have good, true, and beautiful as the banner for what Christ has given us. Everything else is a shoddy imitation of that. Look, I know by by and large, we in the church have sought friendship with the world. We've tried to adapt things. We've tried to tolerate things. But I think now is a time for distinction. The cultural forces are now at the pews and pulpits. And at some point, when is it? When is enough enough that you say, no, no, no. (laughs) My king rules those things. I'm gonna go get it back. Friends, we have conceded a lot of ground in the West. We've got to understand that appeasement does not work. The battle is now here. And there is no more cultural Christianity holding our enemies at bay. There's no more common set of morality that there was 50 years ago. We are surrounded on every front, and the battle is here. This is the result, I think, of failing to fight. But now is the time for courage. And young people, now is the time for courage. 
There's a lot of people here who are like, my time for contending is on the backside. We need young men and young women willing to stand for Christ. I'm reminded of a Chesty Puller. If you know anything about Chesty Puller, he's probably the most famous Marine, and he's exactly what you picture. Every caricature of a Marine you could have. You know, you know just edgy, gravelly voice. And he had been sent into uh, South and North Korea during, that, uh, during the Korean conflict. And he was to go seek out this band of, of 100 uh, these snipers that were, were holding them at bay. They had been on the look for months and have never found these snipers. And one morning he's awoken by a scout who says, hey, uh, they're here. Like, what? He said, no, they're, look. And he could just see all these people. They were surrounded in the valley. Chesty pulls his men together. They got about 20 of them. He says, we've been looking for the enemy for some time now. We finally found him. We're surrounded. That simplifies the problem. All right, they're on our left. They're on our right. They're in front of us. They're behind us. They can't get away this time. And friends, it's game time. It's game time for the church. You don't need to look really far to find an unbeliever. You don't need to look really far to find someone who is in desperate need of Christ. It's game time for Christ, crown, and covenant. If we love Christ, let's engage with him. If we love our enemies, let's tell them the glories of the kingdom and contend in such a way that people are moved by our conviction and our courage. As G.K. Chesterton says, we fight not because we hate what is in front of us, but because we love what is behind us. Let's remember, we are in a battle, and our king has given us a role, but he's also promised us a victory. Where he calls, he also provides. Do we believe it enough to fight, and do we care enough to win? Jesus told us the world would hate us, so why does that surprise us? Let's regroup, let's refocus, let's recharge. I know we're tired. I know we're tired, but let's go and continue to fight and press on until we can echo with Paul that we have been poured out like a drink offering. The kingdom starts in a garden with two people who fail miserably. It ends in a city that looks an awful lot like a garden with a king who has fought and won and defeated every single enemy with billions of people with a fully cultivated earth. God's reign is over all, and we as image bearers go forth in that power and in that promise, and he will one day be established on the earth with all things having been made new. What a privilege it is to begin doing that work even now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.